Listener production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer and the host of the Motley Fool Money Podcast. But more importantly, we're bringing you the latest episode of our relatively new podcast called The Good Oil. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the phrase, but giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast bring you the people, the entrepreneurs, experts, and executives, the people who know what's going on and the people who make it happen. Now, speaking of which, today's guest is someone who is right in amongst it. And it, well, the property market, the financial markets, the world economy, he is the man to speak to just as the world seems to be about to be turned on its head, or is it? Today, I'm speaking with Pete Wargent, author, buyer's agent, and all-round property expert. Pete, welcome to The Good Oil. G'day, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Such a big intro there, so hopefully I'll live up to the billing. Mate, you will absolutely not struggle at all to do that. In fact, if I if I read from uh, your, your website, it says, Pete Wargent is the founder and director, amongst other things, of Wargent Advisory. He specialises in analysis, dynamics, and impacts of Australian household debt, construction trends, and real estate market cycles, maintaining a comprehensive database of financial data analysis and other information. His goal is simple, to find an edge for his clients. Now, we're not your clients, mate. You're doing this for free, so I appreciate that. Uh, But I'm looking forward to chatting about a whole heap of stuff that we have going on. Mate, I I do want to start in a slightly different place, though. Um, The beauty of social media and kind of just being able to uh, bang into people, you and I have only met in person once, and it was a, a, a fleeting meeting at Sky News Business, or, or Your Money, as it was called then. Uh, but we've been kind of corresponding on Twitter for years. It's just one of those things. If you're not on Twitter out there, guys, jump onto it. Uh, don't necessarily have to, to follow all the stuff that's going on, but there are some really, really great people. And Pete and I kind of, as I said, we've, we've, I think we've probably exchanged about 15 words in person, mate. The rest of us have been on Twitter. It's real-time information, right? So that's the real benefit. You get... Um, so at the time of speaking, the jobs figures came out today and you get everybody's thoughts in the first half an hour or hour. I mean, that's the real beauty of social media and Twitter these days. That's great, isn't it? Mate, I'm sure our listeners can hear your accent. You're not Aussie by birth. Maybe you can just give us a bit of your background. How did, how did you get into finance? How did you get into property? Uh, how did you get to Australia? Well, what's, the, what's the Pete Orgent story up to this point? Um, originally, it was cricket that brought me over. I came to play uh, grade cricket at Waverley. Uh, so like a lot of Poms, I've spent a fair bit of time around Bondi over the years. But I was um, by profession a chartered accountant, which was actually on the skills uh, shortage list um, back in the late 1990s and then uh, increasingly so through the mining boom. So I guess, yeah, my uh, background professionally is as a chartered accountant. I was um, previously at Deloitte and then I went out um to do my own thing about 10 years ago. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a, I've done a fair few things over the years, as you mentioned. Um, but yeah, it was originally, uh, it was the warm weather and cricket that brought me to Australia and uh, liked it so much, ended up staying. Excellent, mate. We're very, we're very lucky to have you. Um, speaking of that, how do you define yourself these days? Are you a property guy, a finance guy, an economics guy, a, an agent? Are you a consultant? Uh, how, how would you define your kind of core skill set and what you, what you normally do a day to day? My expertise is mainly known for Australian property, um, but I, I take an interest in um, the stock markets as well and uh, more broadly just the economic trends. I find especially demographics and um, how the country is evolving, I find that stuff fascinating, but um, yeah, mainly property these days. 
I'm going to start with a big question and we'll narrow it down from there, mate. There is so much going on economically, uh, globally and locally. Uh, probably the more, I mean, I was going to say more interesting time in, re- in recent years, but then we've had COVID before this, we've had the GFC, uh, we had the dot-com boom and bust. It's, it's never not interesting, I suppose, but um, it seems like maybe maybe the new year, uh, it's always nice to have, a, have something to hang it on to. The new year feels like it's brought a whole different set of economic circumstances and challenges. So maybe just start, start globally for us. And, and if I just said, look, mate, what's what's going on globally? What are the what are the key uh, you know dynamics that are that are at play? What are you seeing? And we'll get to Australia in a sec. But just if you think globally, where, where's the economy placed, and what what are the the push and pull factors right now? I guess uh, as we all know, the the lockdowns and restrictions have. Um created probably an unprecedented set of dynamics. So a lot of people working at home. Um, the governments around the world have tipped in um, huge amounts of fiscal stimulus, especially in Australia, uh, one of the largest stimulus packages globally. And of course, central banks have also come to the party uh, this time around and have um, eased monetary policy. We've seen um, what they call quantitative easing or effectively money printing as they uh, like <laughs> to uh, conceive of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess there's huge amounts of stimulus, but then I think uh, the, the less well understood uh, factor has been just all the disruption to supply chains around the world. And now we're starting to see this come out in inflation. So people are seeing um, not only are they seeing uh, things like their rents going up, but the cost of materials is spiking. Uh, services costs are going up because there just isn't the labour force availability. And um, this is something we haven't really had to talk about for 20 plus years. The prospect of high inflation, we've got so used to inflation being stuck in low sort of uh, low ones and twos. And suddenly we've got inflation, particularly um, in the US, but also parts of Europe and other parts of the world, suddenly people are like, well, hang on a second, we're looking at potentially double digit levels of inflation here. Um, so that's the big uh, dynamic. And I guess as it relates to you and me, it probably means we're heading for higher interest rates. So that's that's the big worry factor for markets at the moment is, well, what happens if our mortgage rate start, starts uh, creeping up? And particularly what happens if it actually spikes higher? That's what's really worrying people at the moment. Yeah, and that's so much going on, mate. I'm curious from your your trip around Europe, as you say, and, and being in England for a while, doing all that kind of stuff. Where did you? Well, did, are you are you seeing recovery? Are you seeing normality? Obviously, as you say, most of us are stuck here. We kind of we travel travel vicariously through you and through the, the news, but. Uh, if you think about that kind of COVID recovery, and, and we'll talk economically specifically rather than anything else, but do you see that underway in Europe? Are they getting back to things? There seems to have been a bit of a two steps forward, one step back with lockdowns and other stuff. What, what was your experience over there, mate? Oh, exactly that. So there was an initial sort of hedonism trade as everybody uh, was able to go to festivals and go to pubs again. And, uh, you know, there was obviously an an initial excitement. And certainly um, I was in London in December and the Christmas shopping was absolutely booming. You know, the people have had their... Uh, furlough payments in the United Kingdom. In Australia, we had um, other forms of stimulus. And normally, people would spend that sort of thing on holidays and new cars. But for the average uh, Brit and for the average Aussie, uh, international travel has actually been off the table. So it kind of leads to this question, if you're not going to spend your 
a lump sum on international travel. And a lot of people aren't that keen on buying new cars either for various reasons at the moment, the switch to electronic vehicles and so on. Well, where else is that money going? And it's finding its way into um, retail, particularly online retail. But as you said, there has been a bit of this two steps forward, one step back, because um, now I haven't been there, but reportedly in January, things were much quieter in London. People aren't that keen to get back into the office. Certainly that was my experience in Sydney in January, very, very quiet. I think only just now in mid-February, we're starting to see people creeping back to work and getting back on public transport. So look, the, the economy um, in terms of retail spend has been very strong, uh, but it's really uneven and there's not really been a sense of getting back to normal just yet. You mentioned you mentioned a few here, or twenty, thirty years ago, and you're right. I, I occasionally get asked by younger younger hosts than me, younger interviewers than me. Uh, you know, all of a sudden we got this inflation thing, uh, and and the benefit of having a, a few grey hairs, or in my case, no hair, is uh, is uh, we've seen this movie before, right? We, we know about the stagflation in the early '80s, where we had high inflation, no growth. We know about, of course, high inflation interest rates in the early '90s. The, each time. Uh, Four or five years ago, I think we, that we had the inflation is dead headlines, and that was a very, very good sign that inflation wasn't dead. <laughs> That's when you start worrying, right? When people say these things are over, they forget that cycles are real. When you think about that inflation impact, we'll get to we'll get to kind of Australia and Australians in a minute, but we're seeing double the rate of inflation in the US, seven and a half odd percent there, about three and a half percent here. Is your sense that that is genuinely? independent markets with independent pressures or are we seeing maybe with a bit of foresight the sort of pressures that may make their way from the US down here? Uh, I think the latter. I think when you actually look at the composition of inflation in Australia, well, food has been a big part of it, uh, which I think actually will probably write itself in time as supply chains come back online. Um, and also uh, fuel. But I mean, fuel is um, kind of uh, marches to its own drum to a certain extent, depending on oil prices. But I think there's a lot of things that haven't really shown up in the inflation figures yet, most notably rents. Um, now, this isn't uniform. Some of those um, CBD markets have actually seen rents fall. But certainly in some of the coastal markets around the country, uh, where we are in Noosa, I mean, rents are going through the roof. Um, materials costs are very high. The cost of getting a tradie to come out and do maintenance on property has rocketed. So I think actually there is quite a bit of inflation in the pipeline for Australia. Um, will it sort of be transitory? My gut feel is it probably will, um, but maybe it might need some interest rate hikes to actually uh, calm things down a bit. And then gradually we'll start to see you know, the borders reopening and supply chains writing themselves. But in the meantime, yeah, we, you know, when you think about wages growth that's been quite low and you've got inflation that's potentially for the average person pretty much higher than that. Well, yeah, it's not a great dynamic and it's not something we've really had to contend with since the financial crisis temporarily back then. And that's the challenge, right? Because inflation, while well, the inflationary pressures now are potentially transitory, if they become systemic, this is this is how inflation takes off, right? You have you have price increases that go or cost increases that go into price increases, price increases go into wages, wages become cost increases, and these things can become really endemic if they're allowed to. Uh, interest rates potentially are the are, are the uh, part of the part of the solution. Talk about the US increasing rates possibly by a hundred basis points in as little as three meetings, March, April, and May. Um, a decent shock to the system or priced in, do you reckon? 
Um, yeah, well, I guess, you know, markets these days tend to price in information pretty quickly, as you know. Um, so, yeah, look, it's, um, it's definitely a changing dynamic. Um, whether Australia sees um, uh, the cash rate hiked as quickly as that, that's probably, that's probably not going to happen. It might take a bit longer here, but the trend is obviously up. Um, I, my, look, my gut feel is that inflation is transitory largely because a lot of those dynamics that caused us to have low inflation in the first place, uh, particularly the idea of um, outsourcing work to Asia, you know, these days you don't have to employ people on a full-time basis. You can outsource to Manila or the Philippines yeah, or other yeah. parts of Asia. I mean, those dynamics haven't really gone away. Um, so I guess in time we'll probably see inflation uh, come back into into line. But in the meantime, there's a lot of uncertainty about what that means for interest rates and for the everyday household, obviously mortgage rates. Yeah, I, I want to get to the impact on households in a second, but let's go to interest rates. Uh, I'm going to, uh, for, for a day, Pete, or for, for, for 15 minutes at least, I'm going to make you the RBA governor. There is so much being talked about and, and neither you nor I know for sure what they will do. We have views maybe on what they should do, but they're, they're very different things. I'm, I'm reminded that, uh, that Phil Lowe talked about neutral being 25 to 3.5% at the official cash rate. That's a full, almost exactly 25 or 3.5% higher from now because we are at 0.1. So let's round it down to make our maths easier. Um, that's a that's a, a shock to the system. Not, not a shock for those of us, again, who remember those sort of neutralish rates, but we had emergency levels of this 0.1 for such a long time now or, or around this level that it is a bit of a shock for plenty of people. And we'll get on to the impact on, on housing and, and the economy in a second, but just, just purely on the decision itself. Do you think we get to that point? Is that a bit of jawboning, a bit of reminding the market things can be tough? Uh, I, I mean, taking two full percentage points out, out of people's you know, pay and into, into property is, is a big deal when it comes to mortgages. On the, on the other hand, of course, savers would like a bit more for their cash. Um, where do you think the RBA ends up? Do they get there? Do we, do we find that small movements do enough? What's your, what's your sense of, of what might be required and where we might get to? Although for this cycle, I, I don't think there's much hope of getting to two and a half or three percent. That's that's my gut feel. And of course, things can change. That's the beauty of yes, financial exactly. markets. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah look, I, I think realistically, um, I think I, I think um, rate hikes will be delivered in a fairly considered and gradual manner in Australia. And I think, um, look, if I had to guess, if you had put me on the spot, I'd say, look, terminal for this cycle, <laughs> one to one and a half percent. But who really knows? I mean, they used to say back in the day, didn't they, Scott, that uh, mm -hmm. once, once the inflation genie gets out of the bottle, it's hard to stick it back yep. in. Um, and that's, I guess that's the real unknown factor. But yeah, look, it feels to me like um, a few taps on the brakes and that might actually be enough as the world starts to open up again. But let's see. And I have to say, we're, we're all experts from, from, from the armchairs, the, the proverbial armchair experts. It must be tough being the RBA because you do not enough and the inflation duty gets out of the bottle, to, to use your phrase. That's exactly what potentially can happen, and they've got to be worried about that. On the other hand, you do too much too quickly, and you shut down the recovery, unemployment goes back up, business activity falls, and inflation is the least of your worries. And it really is, again, it's, you know, we all like to fantasise about what if we had the controls and we do this and do that, but the reality must be, must be meaningfully different. Um, back to Australia, we talked about the recovery in, in Europe. It strikes me that here... There's between the inflation rates, things like rent and other things, but also the, the war chest of savings we've built up because, again, as you alluded to earlier, we weren't spending a lot of money traveling and doing other things. 
it feels like there's not much standing in the way of the recovery. God forbid another COVID wave, but but kind of that aside, it feels like if you were, you know, unemployment 4.2% was the most recent numbers um, last month. It seems to me like there's, there's every reason to believe that 2022 should be a pretty good year economically. Oh, I think I totally agree. When you actually look at things like job advertisements, um, we've got the borders reopening. At the time of speaking, the cash rate is still 0.1%, as you mentioned. Um, Households are sitting on the best part of half a trillion dollars of savings and buffer, which is unprecedented. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the the excitement of being able to do things again, I I actually tend to agree. And, uh, you know, if things go well, who knows, we might see the lowest unemployment rates in a generation um, at the moment in the low fours. But, if things start um, really humming, we could be somewhere in the threes. So, yeah, I I tend to agree. Now, I guess there's always a bit of a danger trying to predict or forecast things in the midst of a a pandemic um, because, you know, new variants or things can change. But at the time of speaking, you would have to say Mm -hmm. with all of that stimulus in the economy um, that, yeah, I mean, the outlook for uh, growth is actually very good. And we might even start to see... Uh, stronger wages growth, which is something else we haven't seen for a long time since the mining boom, really. Um, so, yeah, look, the outlook for Australia, you know, let's not jinx it, but it looks pretty good. Let, let's take it then to to, to a, a property conversation, mate, because that is part of your expertise and you, you spend more time looking at the property than most people. It's it's a it, it's a really important, it sounds obvious to say, it's a really important part of the economy, and it is, but even more so because of the impact of interest rates, because of the size of the average mortgage and, and house prices. Um, also because, and it's I, I, this number still staggers me, growth in prices last year, 2021, of 21.9%. Um, things don't increase by a fifth very often in, in the housing market in particular. And that 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 is a just a, a remarkable, remarkable stat. I, I guess I, I, I want to start just by asking you, from your observation and research, which, of which you've done plenty, what were the main drivers in your mind? Everyone can speculate. We've all seen the headlines. But if I said to you, mate, why did property increase 22% or 20, yeah, 22% last year? What, what do you put it down to? It was mainly um, the fall in real interest rates. So, um, yes, there's always different factors. But, you know, the borders were more or less or effectively were shut. So it wasn't an increase in the headcount. Um, there was a deep amount of uncertainty early on in the pandemic. So, look, in Noosa, we were relatively not that much impacted. But actually, once the vaccines came around and people realised, well, the world probably isn't going to end, and then you've got mortgage rates at much, much lower levels. I mean, fixed mortgage rates have been in the ones. You know, we haven't really seen that in Australia before. So, look, I mean, when you actually model this stuff out, um, the Reserve Bank actually found a 1% decline in real mortgage rates could equate to a 28% increase in prices. And, well, we got 20-odd percent at the capital city level. So, yeah, I mean, that's really the biggest driver. And, of course, um, sentiment is always a big thing, momentum in housing markets, because people start to fear, well, if they don't buy this month, they'll be paying more next month. And that's why you get these upward spirals. And that's more or less exactly what happened. But the trigger was low mortgage rates for sure. 
I think that's I think that's right. My, my I've described before as you know the the housing market's kind of maybe it always was, and maybe it's, I'm just noticing it now. But it's become almost fully financialized. That is, it's exactly doing as you say, responding to changes in the cost of money. Shares have almost always done that. Housing possibly didn't do that for for the longest period because it just wasn't seen as a financial asset in the same way. Now it seems to be. That raises the obvious, well, I mean, there's a policy question more broadly, but just purely financially for now, that raises the obvious question that if, you know, I won't say what comes up must go down or the other way around, but um, but, but it seems likely that if we say prices, prices are a function of repayments times interest rate, which is kind of what we're talking about here, then it should be the same on the other way, right? As, as rates go up, we should see prices decline, assuming that that logic holds in both directions, and maybe it doesn't, and I'll, that's what I'll ask you. Um, we've seen CBA and NAB at least forecasting 10-ish percent falls in 2023 and, and moderate gains this year as we kind of go you know, go around that corner, go from falling in low rates to rising in higher rates. Do, do, you, do you buy that logic? Does it work the same both ways, or is there something about housing which says, well, we're going to pay a bit more, but we're not going to let it go too cheaply anymore. So, it, you know, does it does it confound the laws of economics, or will it will it fall in line? Yeah. Look, uh, the interesting thing actually here is on the Reserve Bank model, and actually um, Trent Saunders and Peter Tulip did a, a paper on this some years ago, where they said, look, a real de- you know decline in mortgage rates of one percent, other things being equal, well, that could see prices up twenty eight percent. Now, as you said, this leads to the obvious question: Well, what happens if rates go up 1%, does that mean prices crash 28%? And look, for for a range of reasons, no. Um, One of which is, uh, without getting too technical, there is something of a non-linear impact, right? So if you cut the mortgage rate, well, let's take a real example. We mentioned inflation in the early 90s. Well, um, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but the cash rate fell from 17.5% to 12% in a very short space of time, but it was a terrible time for the housing market in real terms because mortgage rates were still high and people were actually worried that they could go high again. So uh, even a huge um, sort of cut to mortgage rates uh, at that time wasn't a big impact. But if, of course, if you take the cash rate from one and a half to zero, uh, that has a much bigger impact, um, partly because, as you mentioned, savers can't find a return on their money. Um, and uh, so I guess, look, that's one of the reasons that the impact is outsized as you cut mortgage rates. There's a few other factors as well, one of which is that the model actually was predicated on a fall in real mortgage rates. But actually, if we get a 1% hike in the cash rate, that's most likely going to reflect we've got population growth booming back. We've got employment growth booming again, which is actually happening um, we've got record job advertisements. So the dynamics are not actually the same. Um, so look, I think at some point the cycle will run out of puff, but it doesn't necessarily follow. We're going to see sharp declines in prices. Of course, there can always be factors that might call it uh, cause it, most notably if there's a regulatory intervention. But I don't think there's actually that much appetite um, for uh, the recovery to be stalled by a sharp decline in prices. So mm. look... We'll have to wait and see. There's a few other factors as well in the model, by the way, if anyone's really interested in the technical <laughs> aspects. But look, I, I actually think it'll be a pretty soft landing when the time comes. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, we, all, we all hope so, mate. Other than maybe first home buyers who are, I feel like they're struggling to get into the market, I have a different view than than most. I don't know if you and I have correspond on this one. We probably have. But uh, to the extent that 
my, my personal view is that property affordability should be measured on repayments rather than uh, an arbitrary price because that is a function of interest rates by definition. Um, saying that a house is less affordable, if it goes up 10% if the interest rate halves, ju- just seems seems logically a fallacy. You don't get a lot of love on that on Twitter, can I say? Uh, plenty of people just want to look at the price and say, oh, it's obviously too high, it's obviously too expensive. Uh, I, I, I say that, by the way, partly tongue-in-cheek because I don't know what camp you're in. Um, but I, my, my view is simply that if you can afford to pay the, the the mortgage and that, that that proportion of your income doesn't change because rates fall but prices go up, then it's no less affordable than it was, with the exception of the deposit which needs to be saved. And I guess I just want your thoughts on on that concept and, and maybe how you see affordability, particularly for first home buyers. Yes, you're exactly right. So the deposit hurdle increases. Uh, we've got lower mortgage rates and prices go up. Um, but actually the day-to-day repayments, I mean, even as recently as um, just pre-global financial crisis. I had a mortgage that was 9%. You know, these days, um, as I mentioned, there have been loans written in the last <laughs> couple of years um, under two. So, uh, you know, yeah, and it's, it's actually, you know, you, you, you actually forget, you know, that it was tough doing the mortgage repayments at sort of 8 9% mortgage rates. Um, so, look, I, I, if you were a market analyst, which I sometimes pretend to be, you would do much better off looking at, things like debt serviceability, it will give you a much better read on the market than, for example, looking at price multiples of wages or something. Because that, you know, whether it whether people like it or otherwise, I mean, that is what drives market dynamics, right? So um, as you mentioned, um, much lower mortgage rates, the interest repayments fall. So from month to month, the affordability has been much better. Um, you know, interest servicing costs are well below the 30-year average, um, but actually, in terms of getting into the market, obviously, correspondingly, it's harder for first timers. Do you have a solution for that, mate? I know you're not. You know, I, I made you. I made you uh, the ABA governor. I'll make you the uh, housing minister. I don't think it was one, but if there was, I'll make you the housing minister for a bit. Uh, is there is there a solution for affordability, particularly for first home buyers, particularly for the deposit? I I have half a thought that. Uh, old school banking says you need a 5% deposit. I'm not sure if you've got meaningful serviceability, whether that's super necessary or as necessary as it might have been in the past. I know the banks don't want to be exposed to it, but between lenders, mortgage insurance and other stuff, I, 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 don't, I, don't, want to, I don't want to continue to, to increase prices. I don't want to do necessarily anything that pushes price up further. But if the only thing that locking out a, a good income earner from buying a house is just the X number of years it takes to save for a deposit, it feels like a societal hurdle that probably isn't doing anyone any favours other than it keeps the banks a little bit stronger maybe. Do you, have, do you have a thought on that just purely from a policy view? Yeah, so, well, there's two different ways to address affordability. As you mentioned, demand-side measures, so things like first homeowners grants or in some cases, um, well, we've recently had the first home loan deposit scheme where uh, borrowers with mm-hmm. only a low deposit could actually get into the market and that was very popular. And so, look, those measures work absolutely. I suppose the criticism is always putting more demand into the fire actually in turn will increase prices over time. Um, the other way to address affordability is just simply to reduce prices through uh, things like regulatory intervention or changes to the tax legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally speaking, governments haven't been that keen because I suppose history shows in most developed countries um, when house prices are falling, household wealth is in decline, it doesn't tend to uh do that well for governments at the opinion polls and at the uh, <laughs> when it comes to election time. So yeah, look, uh, there are ways to address it. It's just whether or not the appetite is actually there to do it. 
negative gearing capital gains tax, two big tax impacts on property and on shares, by the way, um, that are... I won't say on on the agenda because I think uh, pretty clearly after after the last election, uh, neither party wants to tackle this stuff. But from a from a property affordability, from a from a property market perspective, prices obviously will change based on taxation changes. Negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount, good things for the health of the property market overall, good for price in the short term. But are they are they necessary? Are they worthwhile? Are they desirable? Are they absolutely necessary? Uh, how do you see that kind of interaction between those particular policies, tax policy in general, and, and the property market's overall health? Well, I guess um, policymakers have identified previously is the, the interaction between negative gearing, i.e. the ability to offset a net rental loss against your income, plus the capital gains tax discount tends to encourage people to speculate on price growth rather than focus on um, yield producing assets. So, I mean, look, it it, it does have an inflationary impact. Um, I actually wrote a technical paper on this in 2019, which um, ended up going to Treasury at one stage. And, you know, we, we looked at the potential impacts, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, if you completely scrapped negative gearing. And look, it would have a difference. Um, it would make a difference to prices. Uh, the impact on rents is somewhat less clear. It probably depends on market dynamics at the time. Uh, but look, actually, over in Europe, um, the United Kingdom did make a change to tax deductibility in the housing market. So particularly for higher income earners, you couldn't get the full tax deduction on your interest from a mortgage if you were a landlord. Uh, but things change. People find ways around it. People buy in limited companies instead of actually in their own name. And uh, house prices have done double digits uh, over the past year. So I suppose the world keeps turning. Uh, it just might change the dynamics of the market. I, I like you mentioned the limited company approach because that's always been my concern about removing negative gearing. You know, every company gets to pay uh, tax or, or, or not <laughs> based on their net proceeds, not necessarily just the the revenue or, or just the expenses. And so that 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 thought is exactly my thought. It might it might make life more difficult if you've got to borrow as a company to own the property. I guess you've got to have more assets there and banks may be less likely to do it. But it does strike me that a set of rules that says there is a tax break for one structure and not for another one based purely on the structure itself feels pretty unsustainable to me because, as you say, those who can afford to will, will gain the system and those who can't afford to almost miss out relative to that. Um, it, unintended consequences are everywhere and particularly in the property market and always when it comes to tax. Oh, it was one of the flaws with Labor's policy, actually, and one of my criticisms is that actually if you were investing via the family trust, you could still offset your losses just in exactly the same exactly. way that you always have. Uh, but for yeah. the everyday mum and dad investor investing in their own name, suddenly they were talking about changing those rules, in- encouraging people to buy new apartments for the tax deductions. And yeah, look, there's always going to be an impact from changes in tax legislation. Um, but it wasn't very popular at the last election. So Look, this time around, there could be changes. It They would probably be post-election, though, I suspect, if they were implemented. We shall see, mate. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon based on the based on the current uh, uh, interest or, or otherwise in, in either party making meaningful changes. This feels like the upcoming election feels, this is a political comment, but it feels a little bit like uh, the, the, the I, I'm, I'm less threat than he is uh, election rather, rather than anyone who has some big ideas for change. We know that the, the government and the opposition have both stepped away for anything really meaningful. Um, keep your 
politics yourselves, guys. If you're listening, I, yeah, I love you, but uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting idea. Mate, let's um, let's turn if we can as we kind of get towards uh, the close. Um, you do you, you were involved. You co-founded Buyers Buyers, the effectively a buyers agency. I'm going to confess, I've never used a buyers agent, but I know a lot of people do, and it's becoming increasingly popular. Um, what's the what's the role of a buyers agent? How does that work? What are the kind of uh, the the pros and cons, or the, or the reasons why someone might choose a buyers agent rather than doing it themselves? Well, in a nutshell, all of the the stress that goes with buying your next property, the buyer's agent, um, if they're doing their job well, um, will remove all of that stress. And in fact, a, a good buyer's agent will reduce time, cost and stress uh, because if they're doing their job well, uh, they'll save you on the negotiation of the price and terms um, because they do it every day. Um, they also can step you through the process. In Australia, it's very common for people uh, particularly investors, to invest away from their own backyard. And therefore, yeah. if you're investing in another state or jurisdiction, uh, different real estate laws um, in every state, unfortunately. Um, so, look, a, a buyer's agent has the local knowledge and the expertise to step you through the process. I guess there's a couple of things that we do differently at Buyer's Buyers. One is we have a genuinely national footprint. So we have a panel of buyer's agents in every state and territory, uh, but also um, we're more affordable fixed fee service, um, partly because we triage new clients. We make sure they have their mortgage pre-approval in place. We make sure they know where and what to buy. So we spend a bit of time on that up front. And um, once they've done the, the planning and the strategy, then we hand them over to the buyer's agent so they can focus on what they're actually good at, which is the buying and the sourcing of the property. Um, so we take care of the admin in terms of you know the things like the billing and the uh, the contracts and all the the manual processes that buyers agents used to have to deal with, and and as a result, we can do it on a more affordable fixed fee basis. Nice, that's pretty cool. So, uh, kind of, you know, there's so much in the way of process improvement that it really is defining. A lot of what businesses are doing in the last five or 10 years, the ability to kind of centralise, streamline, ring out efficiencies and, and cost savings, it feels like one of the biggest trends of the last 15 or 20 years, maybe maybe not even that quite that long, but it seems like that's what's happening now in the buyer's agent space. Um, the ability to kind of put a structure and infrastructure behind what they're doing makes it better for everybody and that kind of reduces cost in the process. Is that a, is that a reasonable summary of what you've just told me? Well, don't want to give away too many secrets, but it, <laughs> yes, it's, it's not that we're that clever. We're actually not reinventing the wheel. If you think to what happened in the mortgage broking space, so in the early 90s... Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, only around 5% of mortgages ever went through a broker. You mostly went to speak to your local bank manager. Uh, these days, um, well, over 65% of mortgages will go through a broker because, um, well, partly because of the role of aggregators. Uh, in the early days, I mean, you had people like Aussie Home Loans, but you've had AFG, Australian Finance Group, Mortgage Choice. All of these guys have actually sort of aggregated the industry. And it makes perfect sense to go to a broker these days because, you know, they will get you a better deal. They can open up access to a range of products. Um, so we're just doing the same thing in the buyer's agent space. Now, at the moment, only about 3% of uh, properties are bought through buyer's agents in Australia compared to if you went to some parts of America, it would be over 50%. And that is partly a function of the prices being too high, particularly, as you mentioned, for first-home buyers or people on a, a limited budget. So that's what we're changing. We're opening up the market, um, hopefully, to everybody so that there's a a range of products for all circumstances and all budgets 
um, including a, a simple negotiation and due diligence product for people who just want assistance with the purchasing part of the process. That's really clever, mate. I like that a lot. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, one last question before I get on to our favourite questions. Um, I, I know you don't want to give away too many of the secrets, but uh, maybe just for our audience, what are, some of the, what are some of the biggest mistakes or conversely some of the most important things that a, that a buyer should do or look at if they're buying a property? I assume most of the time an investment property. Um, are there kind of big mistakes you see or are there big things you're like, oh, you, you know, if you only do three things, do these things? Uh, what, what, what advice would you give our listeners? I would be really careful. I don't want to make too many enemies in the developer space, but <laughs> I see a lot of people being tempted to buy off-the-plan apartments or units because um, somebody has told them, well, good tax deductions. But just like you know, if you're investing in the stock market, um, a tax deduction is not really the reason to invest in a company or a property, a tax deduction could be a nice icing on the cake. But um, very often I see people pay top dollar for brand new units, just like buying a brand new car, you know, and then five or six years time, it's no longer new and it's lost (laughs) value. Um, So that's a very common way that people lose money, particularly uh, as it turns out in southeast Queensland. I think quite often people, they buy off the plan units on the Gold Coast or other parts of the coast. Um, that's a very common story and people resell disillusioned five or six years down the track. So, look, I would generally speaking focus on established properties. Um, The other time I see people lose money is if they get emotionally carried away at an auction and they think I've got to win the auction (laughs) and they're not really focusing on the price or the fundamentals of the investment. Um, So buying in an irrational bidding war is probably another way that people make mistakes. I think the other thing is really just having a thorough due diligence process. I mean, speaking as somebody who lives in Queensland, there are certain things you don't really want to be dealing with as a property owner, flood risk, termites, uh, roof issues. There's there's a lot of things. And for people buying (laughs) units, of course, you want to make sure you do a full strata review. So, I mean, that's a just a general point. You need to have a thorough due diligence process because ideally you want to own assets for a long time and you don't want to be picking up headaches five or ten years down the track because you didn't do the research. I like it. But I have to ask a quick follow-up, which is what makes a great property? I, I know it's a general question. I know there's no single answer, but what makes a great property investment? Well, you know, what, what makes prices and rents go up is when demand is higher than supply. So that should lead you to looking at areas where the population is growing, population is becoming wealthier, and usually landlocked suburbs where there really isn't much more land that can be made available for release. Um, Now, in terms of uh, the type of property, well, a house is a good investment if you've got the budget. If you can't afford a house, uh, well, you still might look at a unit, but what you really want is a high land-to-asset ratio because in the end it's the land that does the levy the heavy lifting for you it's that component of the investment uh, that actually delivers the returns over time it's not the building because buildings typically depreciate or at least uh, give you headaches in terms of maintenance so look i guess um yes it's really about um assets that are in very high demand and uh, somewhat have a point of scarcity or are limited in supply Great advice, mate. Thank you. Let's finish with our favourite last four questions. First one's a pretty straightforward one, mate. What are you reading or watching at the moment? What's on your nightstand? What's on the TV? <laughs> well, uh, for my sins, I'm, I'm watching a documentary series uh, from the BBC called The Blair Brown Revolution. 
um, oh, okay. about the the Labour Party uh, when it was last in power in the United Kingdom under Tony Blair. So don't ask me why, but that's what I'm watching <laughs> at the moment. Um, in terms of um, what I'm actually reading, well, look, I, I'm not not a big reader of uh, fiction, uh, so I've been reading a lot of non-fiction books. Um, I I suppose I recently read very popular for people interested in stocks and just personal finance in general, the Morgan Housel book, which was twenty short book? chapters or something like that. But it's um, I think for anyone who hasn't um, read it, just get yourself a copy. It, you'll, it will repay itself in spades. Uh, but with two kids, yeah, a lot of the other stuff <laughs> I've been reading has been uh, uh, the the the, uh, the thirteen story treehouse and books more of that level. So. Uh, Yes, it's um, somewhat limited time for reading uh, too broadly at the moment. I know those books well. Uh, we're also rereading Harry Potter in our house. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Mate, um, we've talked a lot about trends, a lot about what's going on. But uh, whether, whether you want to be specific to your job or business or just anything on the, around, around the world, the economy, uh, what trends are you watching? What have you got your eye on? What are you looking for and, and looking for changes in? Um, look, one thing that I think people haven't really clocked, and look, maybe I've got this wrong, but I, I think we could be heading for some kind of a rental crisis in Australia. Um, vacancy rates, for a range of reasons, are already at 16-year um, lows. A um, few different things have come together. We don't have um, mainland Chinese investors these days uh, to get apartment sales and construction off the ground, so there's a limited supply. Um, I think a lot of investors sold in a panic during the pandemic. And on the demand side, uh, we've got a very, very strong demographic pyramid in Australia. So a lot of young people after the lockdowns have said, right, enough of this. I'm actually going to go and find a rental, live on my own or with friends. Um, A lot of people have bought second homes to get away from the lockdowns. So there's already a lot of demand in the rental market, and now the borders are reopening. So I just can't see where everybody's going to live. Now, maybe I've missed something, but um, you can bookmark this one for later in 2022. <laughs> but, um, yep. yeah, I mean, vacancy rates have already dropped very sharply in January, and from what I understand, they've fallen further in February, and now the borders are reopening. So, look, um, I guess that's a big trend, which does have knock-on implications potentially for inflation and policy but just at the everyday household level, you know, if there's nowhere to rent, that's a real problem. And I think you'll probably see, yeah, some stories along the lines of rising rents and a rental crisis this year. So, look, I could be wrong, but let's wait and see. You've obviously got a, a long and storied career in, in financial analysis, financial markets, property, the whole lot. If you had someone come in here, a 20-year-old, who said, look, I've just finished school, I've, I've, maybe I've finished uni, maybe I haven't, uh, what advice would you give me about a job in your industry? Well, look, my background was a as a chartered accountant, which um, now there's not many people uh, in their school days thinking, you know what I would love to be when I grow up (laughs) is an auditor, assurance and advisory at one of the big four accounting firms. But um, (laughs) the above having been said, I often get people say to me, well, I'm thinking about doing a career in accounting. What do you think? And I say, look, the CA qualification I think if you're not sure what you want to do for a career, I think it's a fabulous way to go because, I mean, you understand annual reports, financials, you understand how businesses actually run and operate. Um, If you want to work in any industry, they will always need CFOs or finance people and accountants. 
And if you want to go out and do your own thing, of course, you've had a front row seat to how businesses operate. Um, <laughs> so look, it, it might not be your forever career. I think I managed about a decade in total. And uh, one stage I was a director in one of the, the big four firms. But um, look, as a as a segue or as a, a step ladder to a future career path, if you're not sure, I think it's a really good way to go uh, because the qualification will always stand you in good stead. I have not heard that advice before, Matt, but I actually quite like it. The qualification and just the broad experience you get across many businesses like that. It's a great way to get a crash course in business, right? If you're a, if you're a kid out of uni and you kind of got that experience, I, I love it a lot. Mate, last question. I'm an optimist by nature. I get a sense you're an optimist as well, Pete. So uh, just to finish off on a high, what are you optimistic about? Um, look, I, I am an optimist. And I, I think, um, you know, you look around the world and there's, there's always headlines about geopolitical tensions and the next big problem. But look, I, I think um, as the world reopens, I'm pretty optimistic, particularly about the role of technology, people able hopefully to work more remotely, more time working from home, less time stuck in traffic. Um, and just I think technology in general can improve living standards for so many people. And of course, um, all around the world, um, capitalism is dragging people out of poverty. So look, I'm, I'm optimistic about loads of stuff. Like yourself, I'm optimistic by nature. Um, of course, you know, rapid change always brings worries for people as well. But generally, I think um, the world is getting better. And um, one of my big passions is travel. So I want to see as much of it as I can before I drop off. So that's a big part of what I spend my time doing as well. Awesome. I love it. That is a wonderful way to finish. Let's hope we can all do a whole lot more travel in the next year or three and five ahead. Hopefully we're seeing the back of most of the restrictions and lockdowns and frankly, most of the worst of COVID. Fingers crossed. And we can be optimistic about that, Pete. Pete Wargent, thank you for joining me. If you want to follow Pete, as I said, jump on Twitter at Pete Wargent. Your podcast is Low Rates, High Returns. Is that is that right? Yeah, I've actually got two. I, I don't know. Uh, I was a fairly late adopter to the, the podcasting uh, genre, but I um, we have a, a podcast called Low Rates, High Returns, which is me and Stephen Moriarty. And we largely there talk about um, stocks and investing. And uh, it's a bit it's a bit broader than that. We, we talk about, um, we've got a few principles uh, for a successful life as well as just investing in stocks. Um, and then on the property side, I um, have a podcast called the Pete Wargent Property Pod, which I think uh, just made it into the top 20 for the first time this week as I had the cricketer Michael Bevan on the podcast. He's a keen property investor himself. So, yeah, I guess um, I do uh, tend to do the rounds and I've featured on a few other people's pods over the years. So, uh, yeah, I do pop up in a few different places. Low rates, high returns and Pete Wargent's Property Pod. Pete, thanks again for joining The Good Oil. Pleasure. Thanks, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips. It's produced excellently by Beth Gibson and audio imaged brilliantly by Link Kelly. Listener.